0: There's no other way. Trust and obey. For there's no other way. In this particular song, to be happy in Jesus. But we want to make Jesus happy with us. And there's no other way but to trust and obey. Because 1 Peter chapter 2 tells us that this is thankworthy if out of conscience toward God... We endure grief, suffering wrongfully. And it's worthy of glory. And it's acceptable in the sight of God. Let's turn to 1 Peter chapter 2 and finish out this second chapter. 1 Peter chapter 2. The great God of heaven created a man named Adam, saw that it wasn't good for him to be alone, took one of his ribs and created a woman and brought her to Adam. And before they had sinned, said that she is going to be a help meet for Adam. It's not good for him to be alone. After they sinned, he put her more under his authority so that she was to serve him and her desire would be to her husband. His desires and his choices would dictate her life. And that's the way that the first fear of authority was introduced in the Bible in Genesis chapters 1 through 3. In Genesis chapter 4, Adam knew his wife Eve and they had a couple of boys. And so there were children and parents in the world. And the Bible tells us how parents should treat their children and how children should treat their parents. The Bible tells us how wives should submit to husbands and how husbands should love their wives. The two of them got busy and the world was growing in population. Let's not worry about where they came from. There were a lot of sisters involved and so forth. But they got involved. You know, Cain killed Abel, but Seth came along to replace Abel. And pretty soon they were businesses and they had servants and some were chiefs and some were Indians and they had to get along together efficiently And the God of heaven. In great wisdom, he taught men how to farm, how each particular plant was to be planted, maintained, preserved, harvested and processed in order to result in food. Adam didn't have to figure those things out. There wasn't trial and error or the world would have ended because they would have starved in the process. Trial and error doesn't work the first time. But the Lord blesses with all that wisdom. And so he blessed for a man and a woman to have a great, functional, happy relationship when they both fulfill their roles. And if you don't believe it, if I don't protect myself, who will protect me? God will protect you. We just sang it. Trust and obey for there's no other way. So we have three spheres of authority: we have marriage, we have families, and we have the workplace. Then they gathered together in kingdoms and nations, and so we had civil authority and they began to worship the Lord. They called upon the day of the they called upon the name of the Lord in the days of Enos and so there were there was family patriarchal worship to begin with where Abraham would instruct his family and they had a pretty big domestic situation there. There were hundreds of people under his care. It was patriarchal until Moses came along and established authority in the churches. And that authority from Moses extended all the way to Matthew 23 where it's called Moses' seat that the Pharisees sat in. That's religious authority that he gave to pastors and teachers and bishops as it's taught in the New Testament. So there's five spheres of authority all by the wisdom of God for the proper functioning of the world. They are his blessings in concept. They are his blessings in the men that he prepares and puts in them. They are his blessings in how he directs and moves men from time to time to do different things. And we trust and obey. Amen, right? It's wonderful. How would we get along without that? What, how would men and women interact if it wasn't for marriage? They're trying to figure out a way these days, aren't they? And when they have children, you know, two women are going to have children, two men are going to have children, and they do it now. It's disgusting. It's revolting. Uh Uh-oh. Pray for me when I'm there. We're not afraid. It's wonderful how the Lord arranged these five spheres of authority, and if we will trust and obey them, they work so well. We don't need to sit around and try to wonder, how am I going to protect myself? People on the job think, if I submit like the preacher preached the first service, I'm going to be a doormat and they're just going to walk all over me. Who are you forgetting in that equation? The God of heaven. We never forget the God of heaven in any any mental process about the Word of God. We trust Him. He will take care of us. It may go on for a week. It may go on for a month. It may go on for a year. It may go on for a couple of years. If you're praying and doing your best, it's going on because God has a better purpose for you and it happening like that, than it happening another way for the time being. But what we just sang in trust and obey is the proper response to negative events in our lives. It could be a cross that we're called to bear for a little while. But remember with me, Job could have had his trials lifted earlier if he had got the lesson earlier and had humbled himself, Elihu told him so. Right. Do you know why our nation has been preserved as long as it has been? This is not arrogant at all. This is trusting the God of heaven. Because we have prayed for this nation like few congregations pray for the nation. Right. We have tried to honor our rulers for many years now. And we pray for our nation and we want to continue to do so. He he would have preserved Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities of the plain. We don't know what the total population would have been, but he would have preserved it for how many righteous souls? Ten. Ten. Isn't that exciting? Did he ever preserve Israel by Samuel? One man? Yes. Did he preserve a family of eight? One man. Isn't that wonderful? Let's be that one man, but let's do it together. Let's help each other be that one man so that there's a number of us that are doing it. 1 Peter chapter 2, what we have had here is verse 20 to lead us into the final part of this chapter. What glory is it if, when ye be buffeted for your faults, ye shall take it patiently? That is not evidence of much character or Christianity if you've done something wrong and you get punished for it and you take your punishment like a man. That doesn't prove much. But if, when ye do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable with God and we want to do those things that are acceptable with God. And I showed you from Colossians chapter 3 and I wish Colossians three twenty four and 25 had been preached intensely to me earlier in my life because it says that you, you will receive the reward from the great paymaster, the Lord God of heaven, and if you disobey and don't work on the job the way he teaches in Colossians three twenty-two through 25 you will also hear from him. It's just laid out there so plainly, and on the job, whether it's with customers as a business owner, or as an employee of a large company, or an employee of a small company, you serve the Lord Christ. Remember when we heard about full-time Christian service every day, brother? And look what the Lord Jesus says about full-time Christian service. You get to do it tomorrow morning. And so does everyone else in here. Thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to serve the Lord Christ. This is acceptable with God. The apostle Paul would say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 9, whether present or absent, whether in this, wherever he was, whether present or absent, we labor that we might be accepted of Him. It was so important to Paul to be accepted of God and this tells us how to be accepted of God. How are we acceptable to God? By doing well and being buffeted for it and taking it patiently. And what does it mean to take it patiently? Cheerfully enduring it. Cheerfully enduring negative events is what patience is in the Bible. This is acceptable with God and now He's going to lay on us the example of someone who did well. How well did this someone do? It's got a capital S. How well did this someone do who did no sin? Neither was there any guile in his mouth. Verse 22. And it's going to describe the perfect Lord Jesus Christ. And He's our example. Let me repeat to you again something I said earlier. Liberal theology denies the deity of Jesus Christ and they deny the substitutionary atonement of him that it was his blood, his bloody death on the cross of Calvary that actually redeems in a legal transaction men from their sins. Liberal theology just thinks that's too dirty and too ugly and Jesus was just a man anyway because the devil wants to demote him from the glory and position God gave him and the the mystery of godliness, which is so great that God was manifest in the flesh. Liberal theology denies those things. We deny them. Jesus is God in the flesh, and He died a substitutionary death. They want to limit Jesus just to a good man who gave us a good example of how to live a good life. And you should hear their sermons just filled with man-made nonsense about a good example. But we don't want to flush that word example because we have it right here in this 21st verse. So I'm repeating myself that though Jesus did die for us and though Peter, I am teaching you this passage right now, though Peter refers to a legal transaction of Jesus on the cross, he also draws from it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that there is an example involved that we can follow as well. So while there was substitutionary atonement taking place, there was also a practical example being given of how we should work on the job, and both are true. Amen. We've got both. Remember, we all, we're all we always the winners when we follow the Bible. When we follow the Bible completely, you are going to see in this passage that Peter is describing a legal transaction by which he saved us from our sins, and there's two things that flow from that. First, we have an example of him. Second, he saved us and from that death comes the great shepherd of our souls and our conversions that result from the legal transaction of Jesus saving us because it's only at conversion that we return to the shepherd and bishop of our souls and want to please him and obey and follow his example. And so it's all tied together by a fisherman. It's tied together by a fisherman. So he's going to describe in verse 24 who his own self bear our sins in his own body. He's describing Jesus Christ dying a crucifixion death as a substitutionary atonement for our sins. And yet from that, he's going to draw an example about us taking up our crosses daily and going to work. And though we do well and we're punished for it, we suffer cheerfully because our Lord and Savior did. Ryan, you get to be like the Lord Jesus Christ tomorrow just wanted to make sure that you were listening, son. I know you are. He's got a hot and and nasty job that he's got to be at at 5 o'clock in the morning tomorrow morning. But you're going to go down there and do it as unto the Lord. Okay? And you'll keep talking to brothers in this church about looking for another one. Lord, help us. Jason, He did for you. Every day I thought about you with your particular situation on your feet walking on a concrete floor. Standing on a concrete floor? Because cashiers just can't do the same job sitting on a stool, can they? The Lord has delivered you. Amen. And He'll deliver every one of you. Amen. Let's make sure that every situation He puts in our lives, that we respond to it scripturally. That right. is the key. He is going to test us, try us, tempt us, and put things in our lives, every single one we respond to, scripturally. You didn't sound very bitter Brady, you were thankful. I had an event like that happen in the last year. I don't know that I was as thankful as you were. The Lord and my wife are the only witnesses. You did a good job. We always want to respond right because of living with sinful men, of relating to them in these five spheres of authority, because of God wanting to perfect us, He is going to bring something into your life before this day's over. He may bring two somethings into your life. You know, last Sunday night, it was six inches of water and six inches of mud. And two of you went to bat for a brother. Praise the Lord for all these things. And there's so many more. It's how we respond. And so we're going to be in job situations, whether as a business owner or as an employee, that's going to push us to the edge. But the Lord Jesus was pushed to the edge and he did not break. That's right. Did he ever lose it on trial? Did he ever? We're going to read it. It's wonderful. These words are wonderful. But they are to be understood as a legal transaction that saved us and an example drawn from it of how we're supposed to function on the job. So it's beautiful. Here we go. For even hereunto were ye called, verse 21... As a Christian, you are called to suffer for doing well because that's what happens in the world. Because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. He walked carrying his cross up the Mount of Calvary and was nailed to that thing and it was dropped into a hole and he hung there between heaven and earth on that tree and he did it cheerfully. And brethren, he prayed that God would forgive The men at the foot of the cross. When have you ever been abused on the job and went into your office or took a break and went out to your automobile and sat in your car and asked God to forgive them and prayed for God's blessing on them? That is how we should respond. I know this doesn't sound consistent with human nature because it's not. It's consistent with a spiritual nature. Jesus did that. It's mind-blowing. They totally abused him in a trial. It was a, it was a mistrial. It was a terrible trial. That the, that the Lord Jesus Christ was crucified. And the way that he was tortured, the way that he was scourged, the way that he was buffeted, buffeted, blindfolded and buffeted, mocked, a robe put on him, a crown of thorns, a reed put in his hand to pretend that it was a scepter of a king, On and on they mocked, reviled, and threatened him. They blindfolded him and punched him in the face and said, if you're the Son of God, then tell us who punched you. Did he know who punched him? Did he know every secret sin about that person that punched him? Could he have let out of his mouth a flow of stuff about that man that would have humiliated him in front of all of his friends? Could he have expressed it in such a way with the tongue of the learned that everyone that was listening would have known that he was telling the truth and that that man was a scumbag that was in front of him? How much came out of his mouth? It was amazing. Pilate was astonished that he wouldn't say anything. The Bible says he went like a lamb to the, to the slaughter or as a sheep to the sheep, the shearers. They're quiet. I've watched it before. I wish we could watch it more. I wish I could, you people could all see it. A sheep shearing is a wonderful thing to watch because it's described in the Bible a number of times. But we were called to be this. This is part of the Christian religion. So be excited about the opportunity if you have a situation where someone pushes you, offends you, irritates you, disappoints you, abuses you. It's an opportunity. It's a privilege to be like Christ. Until it happens, you can't do anything glorious. For what glory is it if you get in trouble for your faults? There's three things here that we want. We want to do something that is thankworthy. We want to do something that is glorious. And we want to do something that is acceptable to God. So, we do well, we suffer for it, and we take it patiently. We do well, we suffer for it because we're mistreated in the job. God arranges every single event of it. And we take it patiently. We cheerfully endure it. So let's look at our great example. Verse 22, who did no sin. What did he do wrong on the job? Nothing. Who did no sin. No sin, not few sins, not overall good character, not overall a good performance, not a good performance appraisal from the last time you had a review that showed from a on a scale of 1 to 5 you were a 4. No sin. He was a 6 on a scale of 1 to 5. He was the Lord of glory who did no sin. Inside, we say to ourselves, I don't deserve to be treated like that. I haven't done anything wrong. Or if we've done something wrong, I haven't done anything that wrong. It's how we justify it to ourselves. The Lord Jesus, who did no sin, neither was guile found in His mouth. Guile, insidious, cunning, deceit, treachery. Nothing evil came out of His mouth. He did not corrupt anyone with His speech. He didn't say anything evil even while He was under trial when He could have. He was being charged with so many false things He could have said all kinds of things, but he didn't. Aren't you going to say something? Pilate said, listen to all the charges they're bringing against you. Aren't you going to say something? And he marveled. I appreciate your testimony, David, that some don't speak as quickly and others do. Anybody in here that speaks on the the front end, usually? I'm looking for a hand. Uh, But the thoughts are just as bad in the sight of the Lord. The thought of foolishness is sin. In Proverbs 24 and verse 9, the Lord wants our hearts and our minds engaged to be acceptable to Him. If we don't say anything outwardly, but all the thoughts are twirling in our head, we don't make the cutoff for something that's glorious, for something that is thankworthy, for something that is acceptable to God. But the Lord Jesus Christ wasn't thinking evil thoughts, nor did He say any evil thoughts. Do you know what He could have said? We're going to get into it right now in the next verse. There was no guile in his mouth. There was no misuse of words. There was nothing he had ever said wrong. We're all guilty of saying things wrong. But not the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we do a good job, on the job, for a boss, and we are mistreated either by something being omitted, like a pay raise or a promotion or a transfer, or something being committed against us by name-calling or abuse or criticism, or harshness, or extra assignments that we can't finish on time, whatever the case might be, think about the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't have a place to sleep for three and a half years. He traveled all over Judea, preaching the gospel, healing the sick, raising the dead, feeding the multitudes, calming storms at sea, preaching the pure gospel of the God of heaven, fulfilling every prophecy ever given to that nation, they crucified Him for it. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. There wasn't a corrupt thing he had ever said that they could lay against him. Who? Here we go. This is the Lord Jesus Christ on the job, if you'll allow me that little expression on the job. He's on trial for his life. And he lived for three and a half years under a microscope by men who wanted to find fault with him. Do you think you've ever been vetted? The Lord Jesus Christ was constantly vetted. And he was constantly tempted, as Luke puts it in chapter 20, of spies sent to catch him in his words. To catch him in his words, but there was no guile in his mouth. Did he ever try to sow sedition against Caesar? No. Did he ever try to sow sedition against the tribute money for the temple? No. Peter, go down and catch a fish. The first one you get, pull it up and look in its mouth. There'll be a piece of money there for you and for me. He said, we don't owe that tax because my father owns that temple. But we'll pay it anyway so that we'll avoid offense. Is that a guileless man? That is just a wonderful example. I I love that example. Brethren, even, even if there were tax issues that we should think about, which I don't know of any that we should think about, We should just pay it. The Lord's blessed us so abundantly to avoid offense. We should do it because Jesus did it and he gave us that wonderful example. No guile in his mouth. Who, when he was reviled. When he was reviled. To revile is to subject somebody to abusive language, insolent reproach or abuse, insulting, offensive language, scornful rudeness, despite Jesus faced it in his lifetime and at the end. He was called a winebibber. The Lord Jesus Christ drunk, the soberest man that ever walked this planet was Jesus of Nazareth, and they called him a drunkard. If you have ever seen a drunkard, and what a despicable situation it is when a man is drunk, the change in personality, the ridiculous things they do, The inability to do normal things. The corruption of their sight. The corruption of their speech. The corruption of their thinking. Drunkenness is horrible. They called my Lord a drunkard. What have you been called in the job, brother? They called Jesus a drunkard. The soberest man that ever lived. They called him a glutton. Just because he ate bread. And John the Baptist didn't. John the Baptist, John the Baptist drank Water and eight grasshoppers dipped in honey. So they called him a winebibber. They called him a glutton. They accused him of casting out devils by the power of the prince of the devils. Do you know how reviling that is? Whenever you have read those passages of Scripture, did he respond with harsh language? No. He told the truth sometimes, and he reasoned through with them. If I'm casting devils out by the power of Beelzebub... Who are, you, who are your gypsies casting them out by? That, that's a decent question. It was done calmly. Satan's kingdom isn't divided against itself because a kingdom divided can't stand. And Satan's kingdom has stood for 4,000 years. So I don't think that I'm casting out devils by the power of Beelzebub. And I, I think you know that. I mean, he just reasoned with them. He didn't blast off like we would have against them. But he was accused. He was reviled. That way. In fact, in Matthew chapter 10, he was called Beelzebub himself, the prince of the devils. On trial, he was mocked and derided as king of the Jews. Pilate may have had some suspicion or some belief that Jesus was the king of the Jews because of what he put on that cross in spite of the Jews' complaint about it. But that purple robe, that reed in his hand like a scepter, that crown of thorns on his head, they were reviling him. They were mocking him. On the cross he was reviled and mocked for prophecy about the temple. He said, tear down this temple and I'll build it again in three days. And they mocked him for that. And he didn't remind them of how it would be fulfilled. He left them in the ignorance of the metaphor that he would raise himself from the dead in three days. There are other examples of the injurious words, reproaches, slanders, and blasphemies that his enemies hurled at him during his life and while he was on trial for his life and while he was on the cross. Jesus did not stoop to the wickedness of depraved men to revile by name-calling in return. Reviling is particularly name-calling. You call someone names to offend, to, 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 to degrade them, to ridicule them. Jesus did not do that. He prayed for His Father to forgive them. He spoke to His Father about being forsaken. He spoke to John about His mother. He spoke to His mother about John. That is our holy example. Praise His glorious name. Isaiah had prophesied that though oppressed and afflicted, He would not speak or open His mouth. Isaiah 53 and verse 7. Isaiah had prophesied that He would be like a lamb at slaughter, or it's shearing in Isaiah. You know, when he described their character as the children of the devil in John eight forty four, 44, he wasn't reviling anyone. He was just stating a simple fact that by their conduct, they were looking like they were children of the devil rather than the children of God that they were claiming to be. His appeal to justice and law was done calmly on trial before Pilate when he said, I have preached openly in the temple And everyone here has heard me. Why are they asking of my doctrine now? He didn't revile or say things to them that he could have. You know when he did prophesy of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and the temple and the Jewish nation? He didn't revile anyone. He just laid it out in the form of a parable. Matthew 21, Matthew 24, Matthew 22. And when he did lay it out about one stone being torn down from another, he's doing that with his disciples but he never railed. Do you know what he could have said while he was on trial and while he was on that cross about what was going to happen to the Jewish nation? Instead of saying it to his disciples, he could have said it to his enemies because it actually did happen on his enemies. You know, when we threaten, do you know what it is? It's a bunch of hot air. It's a big bunch of hot air when we threaten. But we still want to do it, don't we? Even though it's just hot air coming out. But the Lord Jesus Christ could have laid real threats on them Of what was coming on that nation. But he did not. When he was reviled. Reviled not again. What a glorious example. Consider what he could have said. Like I've already illustrated with the man smiting him in the face. Buffeting him in the face when he was blindfolded. Consider what Jesus could have said. With his perfect knowledge of each of his adversaries. And having the tongue of the learned. That had silenced them before. He had the gift of speech. We don't. We get all nervous. We get all frazzled. We get all angry. And the angrier we get, the less intelligent are our arguments. But out comes the hot air. But the Lord Jesus Christ was not like that. When the Lord Jesus Christ got angry, like in Mark chapter three and verse five, and he spoke, he had the tongue of the learned, but he didn't use it. That's right. When he was reviled, reviled not again. Next half of that verse. When he suffered, he threatened not when he was abused and having nails driven through his hand and put on that cross and scourged on his back and thorns driven into his head, when he suffered, he didn't threaten. These things that I've already mentioned. And so we have this Peter here. Peter here is brilliant by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to take the legal transaction of the cross and draw from it both the legal consequences of us being saved to be more like our Lord Jesus Christ, because He's the shepherd and bishop of our souls, as the last verse is going to end, and to have a practical example of how we ought to live every day. We cannot show our Christianity. We cannot look like Christ. We cannot do something thankworthy. We cannot do something glorious. We cannot do something acceptable to God until we are suffering while we do a good job. And we'll never be in a situation like the Lord Jesus Christ because he was so perfectly innocent of any false charges, and he was abused all the way to death. And what happens to us? We get fired? Lord, help us to remember our great example. Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again, when he suffered, when he was abused physically and suffered all the pain, when he was being pushed to the edge of human capacity to endure pain, nothing came out of his mouth. Do you know what it takes for something to come out of your mouths when it shouldn't? Mine? How much pain? Uh, Let's not go there. It's ridiculous, isn't it? It's insane. It shows our depravity. Lord, teach us humility instead and to follow your example. But do you know what He did instead? Trust and obey. Do you know where the trust is? It's in the last part of verse 23. But committed Himself... To him that judgeth righteously. When you are in that situation, respond the way that Jesus responded and trust the source of safety and protection and blessing that Jesus trusted. God the Father in heaven. He committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. We all want to go on trial for our lives with a righteous judge, don't we? If you're doing well, if you're doing well on the job and you're suffering for it, wouldn't you like to sit down with someone that has authority in that company or above that company that knows what you've done perfectly and always makes perfect judgment? Well, that is the case. It's the God of heaven. And he committed himself. Do you know what he did at the end, his last words? Father. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. You deal with me as you see fit. I am here at the moment of death. I will now be in your presence. It's not Pilate that I fear. It's not the Jews that I fear. I commend my spirit into your hands. And he passed through the curtain of death before the judge that judges righteously. Now I want to ask you, a judge does two things. He punishes criminals, criminals, He exonerates the righteous. Did those two things happen? Did they happen in a big way? Was he promoted on the job? Forgive. (laughs) I'm trying to make this applicable to you tomorrow. Was he promoted? (sighs) Promoted above the angels. They still desire to look into these things above the angels. He took a seat at the right hand of God. He was the only one in heaven or earth that could take the book of the everlasting covenant out of the hands of God. A judge exonerates the righteous, and Jesus was promoted to the throne of glory. Philippians chapter 2 says, it's because he humbled himself to death, even the death of the cross, wherefore God also hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Every knee should bow and every tongue should confess that he is Lord to the glory of God, the father, Ananias, Caiaphas, the Jews, Herod, Pilate, Pilate's wife. They'll all be there. Those that said his blood be on us and on our children. Those that cried out, crucify him. We'll profess that Jesus is Lord to the glory of God, the father. Amen. That judge, you can, can you commit yourself to that judge? Can you go to work tomorrow and just do your best and be abused a little bit knowing that you're going to receive the reward of the inheritance from your father? The reward of the inheritance was sufficient for the Lord Jesus Christ to go through death. Now, judges do two things. They punish criminals and they exonerate the righteous. I have briefly mentioned the exoneration of the righteous. Jesus was promoted to the right hand of God. And the Bible tells us, if we suffer, we shall also reign with him. If we suffer, we shall also reign with Him. It says this in several places. I want to read to you one from Romans chapter 8. And if children, then heirs. Heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If so be that we suffer with Him, that we may be also glorified together. Because suffering shows us to be Christ. Suffering cheerfully. Enduring negative events cheerfully out of conscience toward God because you want to be more like the Lord Jesus Christ is one of the strongest possible evidences of eternal life and you will be with Christ at the right hand of God the Father. So you have an opportunity when you're abused on the job. My dear brothers and sisters, two things they do. They exonerate the righteous. Was Jesus vindicated? Did the holy God of the universe... Say, this is my beloved son. Now all you angels worship him. He crowned him with glory and honor and put him in his own right hand. Now what did he do to the enemies? We're now talking about your boss that mistreats you. And we want to be respectful in a certain respect, but I just want to lay the truth out. What happened to Caiaphas, Ananias, and the rest of them? Forty years later, Roman mis great tribulation, the likes of which the world had never seen and would never see. Jesus described it as being ground to powder. Jesus described the temple as being pulled down so that there were not two stones attached to each other, raised to the ground, a trench dug around it, hemmed in on every side, until women were eating their children. That is vindication and judgment that there had been a king in Israel and Luke 19.44 says, why did all that happen? Because they knew not the time of their visitation. Jesus had visited them. Right. Can you trust that God to take care of you? Mm-hmm. He will absolutely take care of you. But committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Oh, can you commit yourself to him? My brothers... Jesus didn't find comfort or peace in revenge of any kind. Just committing himself to God. Who judges best in the world? You or the God of heaven? Leave it up to him. Vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Therefore, you can go do to your enemies what he says you should do toward his enemies. And I don't want to corrupt anyone's mind. But that is how you max his judgment. We do not love our enemies to max their judgment. We love our enemies to be like our Father which is in heaven and because he told us to do it. And we want to heap coals of fire on their head. And the greatest pleasure we could have if we're loving our enemies like we should is praying for their conversion. But if you are doing that, God sees every ounce of effort that is put forth in that direction, and he will judge righteously. The less you resent, the less you strive for yourself, the more your heavenly father will take up for you. Be not overcome of evil, but overcome evil with good. Respond the right way on the job, and the Lord will take care of the rest. Work by faith, not by sight. Work by faith, not by feelings. There is so much more than meets the eye, even on the job. If you look around and consider the boss's fancy corner office, you will think things are hopeless. But the Bible tells us don't walk by sight, walk by faith. There's other beings in that room that the boss has never met, that you know about, and they're the angels of God. If you let your feelings direct your heart and mind, you will forget all that this text promises. Commit yourself to him. Then it speaks of Jesus in verse 24. It goes more to the legal transaction. Who? His own self. Bear our sins in His own body on the tree. There was no other with Him, was there? Who? His own self. The Bible says when He had by Himself purged our sins. The Bible says by the obedience of one shall many be made righteous. Who? His own self. Bear our sins. Our sins, from an accounting standpoint, were put in the Lord Jesus Christ and He had to die because of Our sins. Who His own self bear our sins in His own body on the tree. He was innocent. He was righteous. But our sins were put upon Him. He didn't commit them, but He bore them. And when we're mistreated in the job, we can act like Him. That we, on the tree. I want to mention that on the tree. Now, this is Peter by the Holy Ghost. It's usually called the cross in the Bible, isn't it? Because usually you're reading an epistle written to a Gentile here or reader by the Apostle Paul. This is by a Jew to Jews. So it's mentioned the tree. Why Does that have any significance? It, cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. If you go back to, to um, it's Galatians chapter 3 and verse 13 that teaches us this in the New Testament, but if you go back to Deuteronomy 21 and verse 22, it will teach that when men are hung on a tree, they have to be pulled down, and it says in parentheses, because cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. There is that tiny little gospel message in parentheses, cursed is everyone that hangs on a tree. Paul picks up on that in Galatians 3.13. In order to teach, Jesus has suffered the full curse of the law. Not only did he die, the wages of sin is death. Jesus died. But there's also a curse involved by hanging on a tree. Jesus hung on a tree. The Jews understood Deuteronomy twenty one. And so Peter used it right here by saying, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, speaking of the cross of Calvary, taking the full curse of God for our sins, that we, here's the end, as Brother Jim explained the definition of the word end, the goal and the purpose, that we, being dead to sins, should live under righteousness. Now being dead to sins, we haven't died we're still sinning, but those sins no longer have any claim over us because they were paid for with the life of Christ. Right. We are dead to sins legally. They no longer have any hold on us. And because they no longer have any hold on us, and the gospel gives us that sweet message, we are converted to live under righteousness. His death on the cross doesn't make us live righteous lives. His death on the cross, when communicated to us by the gospel, causes us to live under righteousness because our sins legally have been put away. There is no further penal claim. Who shall lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifieth, and yea, rather it is Christ that died, and yea, rather over that, it's Christ that's alive forevermore at the right hand of God. And so it says here, That we should live under righteousness. Notice that the Apostle Peter is getting an example out of Jesus' death and reminding us of the legal transaction of Jesus' death and the consequences of it in the Gospel when we are converted. That it should change our lives. That we should live under righteousness. And what is righteousness? It's submitting to civil authority. It's submitting to employment authority. It's submitting to husbands. Because that's one of the hardest things to do is let someone else be our boss. But Jesus did it, and Jesus, by doing it and dying on the cross, saved us from our sins, took away the legal penalty of it, and the gospel comes to us. We hear that fantastic message of the ransom price that was paid for our souls, and we can say, Lord, what wilt thou have me to do? And the Lord says, He doesn't say to go into Damascus and look up Ananias, and He shall tell thee what thou oughtest to do. He says, Submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. Servants, be subject unto your masters. And so that's what he tells us to do. And we want to do it because he laid down his life for us. And here's Peter getting the example out of Jesus' death and the legal transaction of Jesus' death and the consequences that should result by us being converted when we hear that wonderful message that we've been freed. How many bosses come along, and for every fault that you ever had in the job, just say, I want to blow them all away. I'll never talk about them again. We've expunged your record. I've gone to HR. I've pulled your file. There were, it was three inches big. One inch was good, and two inches were bad. And I put the two inches in the shredder. But the Lord has done that for us. Right. And we should want to live for Him while we're here in the world. And look at what He says next. He pulls this from Isaiah chapter 53. Look what he says at the last part of verse 24. He pulls this from Isaiah 53, 5. By whose stripes ye were healed. Now it didn't use stripes earlier in this context. It used the word buffeted in verse 20. Were servants ever whipped? Yes, they were whipped. Who took the stripes? To give us an example. The Lord Jesus Christ took the stripes. By whose stripes... Ye were healed. Jesus went to the cross. He took the scourge. The Bible talks about it often. It's mentioned a number of times about Jesus being scourged. His back was opened up. He had stripes laid upon him to heal us from our sins. The healing here is the legal healing of the curse of death upon us. Jesus did that for us You're not going to get any stripes tomorrow. Come on. What's the worst thing that's going to happen to someone in here from a customer or a boss? It's not going to be anything compared to this right here. By whose stripes ye were healed. The Romans excused Paul from scourging for his citizenship, but they didn't excuse Jesus Christ of Nazareth for being the Son of God. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. That's a simile. When you find the word as or the word like, a comparison is being made. Ye were as sheep. This is not saying you were sheep and you're returning to the shepherd and bishop of your soul like these were God's elect who had lost their election and were now coming back or they had been converted and lost their conversion and were now being converted again. No, don't do that. Take the simile and leave it a simile. The first half of this verse is a simple simile, for ye were as sheep going astray. My Jewish readers that are reading this epistle that I've sent to you, you were like wandering lost sheep. You did not know how to live in this world. You were third-class citizens, but there is the Son of God who took stripes, healed you, who his own self bare your sins in his own body on the tree, taking the full curse of the law of Moses for you. He has saved you and brought you to himself because he is the great shepherd and bishop of your souls, but are now returned. That word returned is part of the simile. It's part of the simile. It's talking about sheep. Sheep are once in the fold. They go running off. They get lost. They wander around, they're confused, they're foolish, they're weak, they're helpless, and they return. The shepherd either goes and gets them, or they hear the shepherd talking to the other sheep, or they hear the other sheep bleeding, and the sheep comes back. For ye were as sheep going astray, but are now returned. You are no longer wandering in confusion and not knowing how to live without hope in the world even though you are Jews because a Savior has come and died for you and He is the shepherd and bishop of your souls. This shepherd will keep you forever. This shepherd, what does a shepherd do? He protects, he provides, he leads. This shepherd will protect you, this shepherd will provide for you and this shepherd will lead you through life even though you are third class citizens Because this shepherd has just given you instructions on how to conduct yourself on the job. He's given you the example of how to do it. Can you believe that Jesus Christ actually gave us a tour of the plant or the tour of the office and showed us how to do it? But his plant and his office was the cross of Calvary. It was Golgotha. Mm -hmm. Peter transitioned so beautifully from the example to the legal transaction to their conversion to their safety in Christ, the shepherd and bishop of their souls. And as soon as he puts a period to the twenty-fifth verse, he goes after the wives. And so ends chapter two of the Epistle of First Peter. But are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. A bishop's right. an overseer. The word bishop, as it comes into our language and it's used so seldom, hardly anyone knows what it just means an overseer or a superintendent. We have an overseer and superintendent of our souls, and so did they. When you're on the, do you want a superintendent? Is there a superintendent that's causing you trouble at Eaton? Do you want a superintendent that will take care of you? He has already bought you by his own precious blood, and by his stripes you were healed. And when we hear that message, it should cause us to want to live righteous lives for him. And the righteous lives of this context is submitting to authority. He submitted to authority. He had done no sin, no guile. They crucified him for it. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. At all times, he was pleasing God, and at all times, he committed himself to the judge that judges righteously. We can do this. We can do this because Jesus Christ has died for us. He has shown us how to do it, He has saved us. He has regenerated us. He has sent the gospel to us, and he has laid these plain verses out to us. We can do this. Trust and obey. We're going to trust that God's going to take care of us under our civil government, Mm -hmm. and we're going to trust that he takes care of each of you under your customers and under your employers and your bosses, your managers. And when we get to the next chapter, we're going to trust that God will take care of wives under their husbands. Trust and obey. Committing ourselves to Him who judges righteously. May the Lord bless the preaching of His Word. Amen.